it's about time everyone admitted that Rotten Tomatoes is a front for the Myanmar junta. Welcome to an all-new episode of the Future Podcast, challenging the beliefs that run the world. I'm Steve Factor, and today let's talk about some business stories that caught my eye. When I saw this story, it blew my mind. Time blindness. Is this the real reason you're always late? It's not just a character quirk. In some cases, it can be a symptom of neurodevelopmental disorders, including attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, and autism. As I was reading this article, I'm like, oh my God, these guys are trying to medicalize lateness. This thing that we all experience, whether we do it ourselves or our friends do it to us, they're saying, hey, this isn't just some annoying character flaw or maybe inconsideration. This is a medical problem. We've got to solve this medically. This is what we've been doing to everything. And I'm like, oh my God, this is genius. Somebody get me some Pfizer shares and a syringe full of time blindness boosters because we're going to have a party and we're going to make the government buy a whole bunch of shots and then, and then sink them into us and never be late again to anything. I started thinking, okay, there have to be a whole bunch of annoying behaviors that we can medicalize and make a fortune on. So I came up with a few. I would like mRNA shots on the following. Slow pedestrians, double dippers, people who go in twice with the chip or with some other fritter, sockless coworkers. If you're going into work and I'm seeing your toes, I want you fired. Just know that. So if we're ever in the same room and I'm seeing toes and you're a dude, you're out. You're out. Mentally, I've written you off. What else can we cure with mRNA vaccines? Toilet paper underhangers. That is a mental illness. It has to be. Concert cell phone obstructionists. You know, all the people who hold up their camera to film the show for way too long. You know, they're never going to rewatch. You know, none of their friends are interested. They're just annoying and they're just blocking your view. And I'd like to have a syringe that I could just stab them with during the show. So at the very least, their arm will be too weak to hold the camera. The other people we can cure with medical intervention, humble braggers, people who are like, I am so humbled to be in this award ceremony. It's not humbled. Humbled means you're eating dirt, not that you're getting an award. Escalator cloggers, people who stand and block you from going up the stairs or, or down the escalator who just want to use it like a ride. I'm from New York, and just because you're from another place where they don't have escalators or electricity or anything that moves on its own without a horse, uh, that's not my problem. I see it as a medical condition, and I would like to stab you with an mRNA vaccine to cure it. The other thing is shopping cart abandoners who leave the shopping cart in the middle of the parking lot and block a parking space. That, again, is a medical condition. And remember, kids, there is nothing in this world that we can't achieve with drugs. I saw another piece from ARK Invest, which invests in technology companies, that asks the question, how far out are psychedelic therapeutics? 
In this article, we explore the therapeutic merits and investment prospects associated with psychedelics, specifically uh, psilocybin. This could be very legitimate. I don't have any research to refute this. But on some level, I'm wondering how much of this is medicine and how much of this is capitalism. I really can't tell if depression simply is a byproduct of modernity. Civilization goes on. Our problems become inner rather than outer problems. We're no longer trying to survive in the wild or get food. We're now turning inward because we've climbed Maslow's hierarchy or whatever. And now we're worried about worrying or we're worried about uh, existential crises. And Research supports this. There was a study that showed that people in tribal countries don't experience depression. So there is an element of civilization that's at fault here. But there's also this possibility that it's convenient medicalization of depression or natural feelings that we have. There is a certain darkness in our healthcare system and the incentives to turn everything into a disease in order to sell treatments for it. I wouldn't put it past us to do that. And maybe it's a combination of the two. And I don't have the answer here, but I do want to dedicate a little bit of time to researching this and maybe I'll address it in a future episode. Matt Damon was on the Hot Wings show. I forget what it's called. Hot Ones, I think. And he was asked, why don't we have movies, uh, small movies like we used to? And he goes through this really interesting explanation. I'll play a clip. The DVD was a huge part of our business, of our revenue stream. And technology has just made that uh, obsolete. And so the movies that, that we used to make, you could afford to not make all of your money when it played in the theater because you knew you had the DVD coming behind the release. And six months later, you'd get all, you know, a whole nother chunk. It would be like reopening the movie almost. And when that went away, that changed the type of movies that we could make. I did this movie behind the candelabra when I talked to a studio executive who explained it was a $25 million movie. I would have to put that much into print and advertising, right, to, to market it. Um, who we call PNA, so I'd have to put that in PNA. So now I'm in $50 million. I have to split everything I get with the exhibitor, right, the people who own the movie theaters. So I would have to make $100 million before I got into profit. And and the idea of making $100 million on a story about, like, this love affair between these two people, yeah, I love everyone in the movie, but I, it's a, that's, a, that's suddenly a massive gamble in a way that it wasn't in the 1990s when they were making all those kind of movies, the kind of movies that I loved and and the kind of movies that were my bread and butter. So much depended on the DVD market that once this huge chunk of money went away, these companies can't risk making smaller movies anymore. That's why everything's a superhero movie or a big sci-fi blockbuster. I want to dig one or two levels deeper here. First and foremost, this is the opportunity I've been waiting for to name drop Mila Kunis, who I met at a party and had this very stimulating debate. Uh, I told her, I think movies are dead and TV is the future. And I started going into all the reasons why. She was fascinated by this. She disagreed because she also happened to have a, a new movie out at that point. But part of my point was 
that TV allows you to develop stories more naturally than movies do. But also, people want spectacle when they go to the movies. Now that everyone has a giant screen and pretty decent sound system in their homes, there's not a lot of reason to go see these stories in the movies. The third part, which I'm not sure we got a chance to discuss, is the leverage these platforms now have. Studios have always treated their films as a portfolio. They realize that some films won't make money. Just like startup investors expect only a fraction of their investments to make the entire enterprise worth doing, same thing with movies. But there was a time when you had surprises in your portfolio that weren't blockbusters. So you would invest, I don't know, $10 million, 15, 20 million in a low budget movie. And that movie becomes a home run success and makes a hundred million. So you make a huge profit on it. That's become less likely because they're not the only entity that's managing a portfolio anymore. The other side of portfolio management is on the side of streaming companies. Let's say you're Netflix. You're kind of agnostic as to what people consume, but you know you can't spend more than a certain amount. So everything is going to be a little bit cheaper. The other part is your customers are captives. When they make a movie with Sandra Bullock, the one where she was kidnapped or something, they can put that in front of you on your home screen every time you log in, in a controlled environment, in a way that movie companies would have to pay third parties to get to you. That means they have that much more leverage over content creators to keep budgets low. And because of the cheaper technology, you can get in series, what you would have had to get at the movies before. They're not as reliant on huge hits because they control what happens on their platform and to some extent popularity. So it's great to have a unicorn series like Game of Thrones, but the game is keeping people subscribing. So volume becomes more important than probability of success because if it's good enough, you can control the probability of success, or at the very least, you control the marketing layer a lot more than the studios ever did. I also suspect that the challenge to the studio system is gonna look very different than what people think. What we've had so far are Apple TV and Netflix and HBO Plus, entering the streaming space. But I also think there's a next level of disruption, which will include outside investors and all of these creators that are a little bit outside of the mainstream, a little bit too dangerous to touch. People like Louis C.K., who just put out his own movie and he's been premiering it in all these different places. People like Kevin Smith, who's doing a live tour with the actors of Clerks 3. So he's premiering Clerks 3 at like Beacon Theater, and then he's doing a Q&A with the cast and crew and charging a much higher price. Now, it's not super efficient to do it that way, but you get much higher margins. 
And also in this crowded environment, he's taking advantage of his inbuilt audience. And there are other people like comedian Andrew Schultz, like a bunch of uh, other comics who have expressed an interest in developing their own content. Either streamers come in and say, hey, here's a check. We're not going to give you any notes. Do what you want. Or these guys, because of their inbuilt audience, can start to put together their talents and some technology platform and create their own enterprise. Whether it happens or not, hard to say at this point because the incumbents have enough money to throw at these people. But if they're risky enough or edgy enough or they've been canceled, they may not want to touch them. But at some point, someone's going to break out that demon Harvey Weinstein from prison or someone like him and apply his evil talents to making movies in this other context. Obviously, <laughs> crime is a huge constraint, but anything less than that, that is just unsavory or uh, of questionable morality, but it's someone who does have talent and some name recognition or ability to write or create or direct, those are latent assets that are begging to be taken advantage of and monetized. And someone will do it. I guarantee you there's someone in Silicon Valley right now who's trying to throw money at Louis C.K. and Andrew Schultz. Speaking of movies, a little while ago, there was a meme going around where Paddington Bear got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Citizen Kane which is considered the greatest movie of all time, only had a 99. It's about time everyone admitted that Rotten Tomatoes is a front for the Myanmar junta. Actually, Rotten Tomatoes was purchased by Hollywood. And as you can see by this chart, the average Rotten Tomatoes score has been skyrocketing. Either movies have gotten spectacular or something wicked is in the works. There's a reason they bought Rotten Tomatoes. They need to juice the pipeline and they get people into theaters. Even for the audience score, I always think about who is writing these reviews. Like I've lived in New York most of my life and I know tons of people who use Yelp and yet I don't know a single person who has ever admitted to writing a Yelp review. Either they're the secret society, they're like the Oath Keepers, <laughs> and they're hiding somewhere on Reddit, or there's very few of them, and they're a wacky, weirdo group that probably should be monitored by the FBI. And the reviewers themselves are suspect. There were two controversies around this recently. One was... A reviewer at Cinema Blend published a critical review of Disney Plus's movie Turning Red. He gave it two and a half stars. And Disney went to Cinema Blend and forced them to take the review down because they're like, you want us to support your website or give you exclusives or whatever other strings they have, maybe financial ties. But the New York Times reviewing the same movie said, with turning red, a big red panda helps break a glass ceiling because 
This movie promotes the right narrative. It was a female empowerment narrative. Uh, they wrote, Pixar has a reputation for films focused on and written by men, but its latest movie, Turning Red, bucks that trend. An unabashedly female story directed by Domi Shi, the first woman in the studio's 36-year history to be in charge of a feature. That's a great accomplishment, but whatever her demographics are and the quality of the film, one should not affect the other, unless you're trying to manufacture a storyline at the expense of truth. And Disney certainly is doing that. Another reviewer, this guy, Mike Phelan, he wrote, in the distant past, I was asked to fluff reviews because the outlet I was writing for wanted to stay in the good graces of the studio. It happens. Access media is a f***ing curse on our profession. And let's be honest, we're lucky Mike was allowed to live. The search goes on for the bodies of all the reviewers that gave negative reviews and were never seen or heard from again. And in a way, it all makes sense. Hollywood is a microcosm. Instead of making better movies, they buy the review platform. Instead of educating smarter kids, we get rid of testing. Instead of cultivating excellence, we cower behind tokenism. Instead of helping, we're grandstanding. And that helps nobody. So Hollywood is just a symptom of a much larger problem and maybe a protagonist. And another thing just came out. This is from Bloomberg Technology. It said, critics and fans have never disagreed more about movies. Audiences have given the top 10 movies an average score more than 19 points higher than critics, by far the biggest difference this century, aside from the corruption of the industry, which explains why a critic might give a, a woman-directed film a higher score versus one that isn't directed by a woman or directed by someone they don't like politically or for whatever reason. People review movies based on whether or not they like the movie. Critics review movies based on the values they'd like to believe they have. That's a huge difference. They want to believe they're a certain kind of person and they want to live in a certain kind of society and they want to use their writing or their critique as a conduit for creating the society. But it doesn't work because at the end of the day, people see through the lies. People see with their own eyes. They go into these theaters and they see these movies and they go, what the hell are you talking about? So at some point you compromise and sabotage your own function. So the thing you thought you could accomplish, which is mold society with your values or the ones you publicly espouse becomes toothless. Eventually the audience says, huh? what, what is this? You're talking down to me or you're trying to ingrain some uh, philosophy or ideology into me. People are much smarter than we give them credit for. And what these reviewers are doing are actually making themselves obsolete and irrelevant, which they are.
I don't know if people know this, but Ben and Jerry's was acquired by Unilever, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, for $326 million. And Unilever is a $121 billion company. So Ben and Jerry's is now suing Unilever because they want to stop selling ice cream in Israel. They're super political as a company. When I say a company, I use the term loosely as a division of Unilever. They don't believe Israel is correct in how it treats Palestinians. And they're part of this uh, BDSM, which <laughs> and I'm not sure that's accurate. I think that's, that's uh, sadism, masochism, <laughs> BDS movement to divest interests in Israel in order to support Palestine. So people like Roger Waters and others uh, like AOC and Ilham Omar, they support this movement. Normally, I'd be in favor of anyone doing anything they want. But you, Ben and Jerry, have sold your baby. And now you have problems with how it's being raised. You can't have it both ways. There's been a pattern of this. People who have made fortunes selling their businesses to another company and then complaining about how that company runs the business they gave up. A famous example is WhatsApp's founders. They had problems with Facebook trying to put ads into WhatsApp to use personal data to monetize the service. The problem is that you can't claim the moral high ground and take the money. It's one or the other. And it really frustrates me when these guys try to put on this cloak of righteousness, when at the end of the day, they knew what they were getting into. They knew what Facebook's business was. It was no mystery. They have a certain agenda. Just like it's no mystery to Ben and Jerry that Unilever is trying to grow. Their interest is being in every single market that wants their ice cream and probably others that don't and they're going to try to get them to want it. The idea that you can maintain control after selling control is wild to me. It is. It's wild. You're free to criticize, but you're not free of the moral bankruptcy of your criticism. The other guys who had this fight were the founders of Instagram, who also got bought by Facebook, and they were fighting with Zuckerberg over uh, integrations between Facebook and Instagram and all kinds of other changes that Mark wanted to implement. He's trying to run a company. These guys, only once they left with their billions and billions of dollars, did they now feel free to have these criticisms. I just find it really disingenuous. Also, the founder of Waze, which is the navigation app that was bought by Google, he wrote this long blog post about how corporate tech is broken due to ever-rising stock prices and lack of personal impact on your returns. 
corporate tech should move to employee share buyback, where employees must sacrifice some of their salary for equity or change equity to vest by a product-related metric. So basically saying that once you have corporate bloat, people don't feel accountable, no one has a stake in the success of the company. Yeah, he makes some valid points about how large corporations work. They're never going to be like startups. They're a completely different animal. They attract a completely different kind of worker. But the oppression of working at a giant corporation like Google is something that could have been Googled in advance. It's something he could have known and probably did know. But when the check on the table is big enough, you look the other way. He looked the other way and now, like these other guys, biting the hand that feeds them. Maybe we should hold a prayer vigil for all of these uh, billionaires that are now dissatisfied with their sale. Not dissatisfied to the point of giving back the money, mind you. Uh, just dissatisfied enough to complain about it on Medium. The funniest thing is Tim Berners-Lee, who is credited as being one of the inventors of the internet, he wrote a piece in the New York Times essentially saying, hey, uh, I want these giant corporations that benefit from the internet to sign a contract with uh, users to say that this is how we'll use their data. These are the things we can and can't do. And this contract was met with a collective, what the fuck is in it for me? And this guy literally is living a storyline from Silicon Valley, the TV show, where the guy who was head of Hooli, who is one of the worst people you could imagine, pretends to be this righteous anti-tech evangelist and comes up with this toothless decree that he expects every company to sign and Pied Piper doesn't want to sign it because they know this guy's full of shit. Look, have you read his pledge? <laughs> Oh, of course not. It's trash. The first line says, we, the undersigned, promise to make best efforts to blah, blah, blah. Best efforts, Richard. It's totally toothless. Yes, exactly, Michael. That's entirely my point. It's all empty bullshit. It means nothing. This guy's actually living it. And he, he came after the show aired. You would think he'd have a little bit of a reality check and go, hey, wait a minute. This might not work. There's another guy who is uh, one of the big innovators and beneficiaries of tech. He was an entrepreneur and investor, Roger McNamee. He's also been extremely critical of big tech, which is how he made all of his money, uh, especially companies like Facebook and their use of data. Look, I don't even think there's anything wrong with hypocrisy. <laughs> We're all hypocritical in some way, shape, or form. Oftentimes, it's just self-interest. Your financial self-interest takes precedence over your moral imperative. Everyone has a price. And our morality sometimes takes a back seat to whatever that price is and the obligations that go along with that, whether it's upholding a lifestyle, supporting a family, or some other existential or perceived existential need that takes precedence. On some level, I don't blame these people, but we, from the outside, get to see the messiness 
of their perspective and how bankrupt it may be at times. I am shocked this wasn't a bigger story. Mark Zuckerberg was on the Joe Rogan podcast and basically admitted that they squelched the Hunter Biden story before the election because they were approached by the FBI and told that there's uh, Russian disinformation at play and that they uh, shouldn't allow the story to appear on Facebook. And that's exactly what Zuckerberg did. And he's also being misleading because when that story came out in the New York Post, I remember specifically trying to send that link to a friend of mine through Facebook Messenger. It did not allow that link to go through. So even though he said, oh, they kind of allowed that story, but they reduced its distribution, he wasn't specific about how much they reduced it. I can tell you for a fact that I tried to send it to a friend of mine multiple times and it did not go through. Messenger kept giving an error. That link cannot be sent at this time. Just the idea that this isn't being covered as a huge cover-up, I think there are legitimate reasons to hate Trump. There are lots of reasons to want him out of office. But the minute you are okay with compromising principles and democracy and undermining all of it to achieve a certain result and oust the president, that's a problem. That doesn't justify anything Trump did afterwards in terms of trying to overthrow the election result or whatever. Let's take these things one at a time. If you're a principled person, you should be against it. And this is why I was so disappointed in Sam Harris. Sam Harris is, is a really bright guy. I have disagreements with him about uh, religion and some other things, uh, not in the sense that he's wrong, but he's kind of religious in a lot of his beliefs and atheistic principles and meditation, but disagrees with organized faith. Regardless, I find him too smart to take this perspective. Here's a clip. Even the, whatever scope of Joe Biden's corruption is, like if, you, if we could just go down that rabbit hole endlessly and, and understand that he's getting kickbacks from Hunter Biden's deals in Ukraine or wherever else, right, or China, it is infinitesimal compared to the corruption we know Trump is involved in. It's like, it's like, it's like a firefly to the sun, right? I mean, like there, there's just, it doesn't, even, it doesn't even stack up against Trump University. Right. Trump University as a story is worse than anything that could be in, in Hunter Biden's laptop, in my view. Right. Now, that's not that doesn't answer the people who say it's still completely unfair to not have looked at the laptop in a timely way and to have shut down the, you know, the New York Post's Twitter account like that. That's a, just a conspiracy. That's a left wing conspiracy to deny the presidency to Donald Trump. Absolutely. It was absolutely right. But I think it was warranted. There's no way you can morally justify that. Yeah, you might think Trump is an existential threat, but someone else is going to think that, that Biden or some other candidate is an existential threat. And at that point, they can rationalize and justify anything. Politics are so toxic and people are so wound up that they will justify anything because they think the other guy is evil. This is disturbing because people like Sam Harris are too smart to be this unprincipled. And I'm really disappointed in him. 
this Trump derangement thing is real. And he is in that muck where he justifies it. And Bill Maher recently on his show tried to pose this question. And both of the guests who are big mouths, <laughs> Rob Reiner and Amy Klobuchar, didn't say a peep. So he's saying it's okay to have a conspiracy to get rid of somebody as bad as Trump. It's a little bit of a thorny question because once you go down this road, this is sort of where we are in this country. The other side is so evil, anything is justified in preventing them from taking office. Is it? No, no. You know what's not justified? Using armed violence to try to kill people in the Capitol. That's not justified. Answer this question. Huh? Is it, was it, answer this question. What is was the it appropriate? The question is, was, was it press? appropriate to bury the Hunter Biden? You're talking about the press doing the, that? He's saying that's what they did, and that is what they did. They buried the Hunter Biden story before the election because they were like, we can't risk having the election thrown to Trump. We'll tell them after the election. Well, and, and we know for a fact that that's what they did? Of course. You no, don't but follow I mean, this. Saying you you gotta... know for a fact that that's what they did? I don't know what they did. I know, because you only watch MSNBC. No, that's not true. That's not true. Well, then you would know about this. I do know about that. Well, you're acting do, like you I know. Do, I do know about that, and I do watch Fox. But the point is, uh, you, uh, we're going to prove now that, they, that, they, that the, the press uh, played, you know, tried to... They're admitting it. They're, the that's press not is a, admitting it. Yes, that's not even an issue anymore. They're saying, yes, we basically did this because we didn't want this to throw the election. Yes? I don't know that they've all said this. And I, I believe uh, I believe Well, the New York Times the definitely Amendment. didn't. My dad was a reporter. I believe in it. And I think you have to uh, you have to make sure that you're treating people fairly. But I think Rob's point here is that we are dealing um, with a man who used to be the president right now who literally tried to lead an armed insurrection. Oh, what about this? What about that? Neither of them were able to address Bill's question. I think we're in a very dark place when people start justifying unprincipled actions. I have no interest in Trump being president. Once you start justifying anything, you lose me. And you lose a lot of principled people. And honestly, I don't know how many of how many of us are left. I also recognize that principle can often be a luxury good. The people who have enough money can afford to be principled. They could also subvert principles when convenient to enrich themselves. But it's the people who have nothing personal to gain and still act without principle, they scare the hell out of me. I am really scared by unprincipled people. And I feel like we're moving more and more in that direction as a society. And people like Sam Harris, intellectual thought leaders, we can't afford to have them go with the wind depending on who they hate. Recently, I saw two posts that don't seem related, but really are. One said, Many people are familiar with Event 201. However, in 2015, supranational organizations and corporations simulated a major global food crisis that would take place in the 2020s due to conflict and war in Ukraine. Then there's a second post. It says, Israel receives positive hints U.S. is developing military option against Iran. What... I think people don't understand 
is how common scenario planning is. I work with corporations all the time to do exactly that. I've worked with Japanese companies, American companies. I've worked with NGOs a little bit. Everyone is trying to see the future. And people would be shocked at how predictable certain things are because there's so many knowns, known motivations of certain countries, weak spots. And a lot of outcomes, especially geopolitical and economic ones, can be predicted or at least modeled. So this idea that sometimes those predictions come true and it's a conspiracy, it's not. And I understand why people move towards conspiracy. It's comforting in some way. There's a reason for why things are the way they are. A lot of times when someone guesses it right, it's just a good scenario planning exercise and nothing more. That's not to say there aren't people that are plotting nefariously. There are. But think of all of the interventions and wars that the U.S. government has been involved with. Korea, Vietnam, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq. All of these interventions, how have they worked out? I'm sure there are people who did all kinds of great scenario planning at the Pentagon, State Department, CIA. They brought in the best people, the best futurists, the best prognosticators, the best economists, the best military experts. We're going to be able to overthrow this and we're going to create a democracy and we're going to have world peace. I don't know if that was the plan or maybe some sort of nefarious oil and resource plot. Whatever it was, I don't think what happened is what they expected. So the idea that people can conspire in a room and predict outcomes of such complex events is nuts. Even Putin, I spoke about it in a recent episode. I'm sure his guys were like, don't worry about Ukraine. It takes us seven minutes. We conquer whole country. It's no problem. Those guys also thought it would be easy. One of them, clumsy guy, just happened to fall out of uh, a window. He was the guy who's actually saying, hey, let's end this conflict with uh, Ukraine. He was the head of Luke Oil. And it's like, Luke, <laughs> he's oil on the ground. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it didn't work out for him. But that's the reality. A lot of these things don't work out. So the idea that you could plan something so complex in advance and it works out is wild to me. It, that assumes a level of competence and vision that is uh, unlikely. So yes, you will find plans to bomb Iran or whatever other country. There's probably plans to bomb New York somewhere as well. There's all kinds of plans, but the likelihood of all the events unfolding as predicted are very low. Not impossible, but low. I've talked about this in the Victoria's Secret episode and the one about base camp, where these companies allowed politics into their organizations and it started to corrupt their workforce and distract them and create a negative work environment. There's another side to that, which is human resources. Human resources is a human capital maximization function, which means their job is to get the most out of people in the interest of the corporation while pretending to care about the worker. They care about you, but only up to the point where you maximize your value and productivity to the corporation. That's it. That's not to say that they're bad, but that's their role. 
you could dress it up as something else, but the company doesn't care about your career development unless that career development aligns with its interests. There's a slow administrative coup happening at corporations, universities, and other institutions. Seeping in through the human resources layer are a lot of ideologues, people who are into uh, DEI and all of these other, let's call them woke programs. They are kind of um, an ideological Trojan horse to hire people who adhere to that ideology. But over time, that ideology is one of unfairness, and it's one that's not based in merit. It's based in equalizing outcomes and righting wrongs of the past, past infractions of a society. And when applied to a corporation, they will be a cancer to that corporation. I've seen some companies trying to root it out because they're realizing it's destroying morale and hurting their goals and productivity. I think more companies are going to do it. And it's important to distinguish between what they do outwardly and what they do internally. Because internally, they can't afford the ideologies they promote externally. These companies, even the ones who pretend to be woke, are not woke. They're using the veneer of wokeness to protect business as usual. What they're trying to do is align themselves with the perceptions of who they think their customers are. And they're trying to align themselves with their values. The corporation itself very rarely has the ability to take a stand that materially hurts the bottom line. Because at that point, executives will be fired. So they could only take these stands if they believe that net, it will increase profits. And you see companies starting to back off from that outwardly, like Netflix. They're signing up a lot more comedians that are non-woke and saying, hey, there's something here for everybody. And if you don't like the content, don't subscribe. And they realize that they can't run a business based on ideology. I think a lot of companies are going to land there as well, but that's not going to stop them from trying to use this for messaging because they are trying to attract young workers, young customers to project a certain alignment. But ultimately, it's misleading because if you're not willing to sacrifice your own financial success for your values, they're not real values. They're just marketing. I saw this really interesting chart on Disney that from the year 2000 to the year 2020, Disney's price has increased from an average of $43 per ticket to $154 a ticket, something like a 300% increase in 20 years. And yes, part of it is inflation, but another part is they have a, a, a really unique asset with unique intellectual property. So it makes sense that they can keep trying to charge as much as people are willing to pay for it. And they've been improving the product, they've invested in new rides and better experiences. You can't replicate this anywhere else. And you will have kids who grew up with these characters pulling their parents to take them there. Of course, there's a lot of adults in Arrested Development that are also going. And a guy commented on my post, 
Disney is amazing. And when they revamp Epcot, it will be even better. 300% better actually could be true. Wish I could go more often and Universal has a water park that looks like a volcano. That's awesome too. This guy's completely sold on it. They're huge fans. And listen, I've never been because uh, I grew up poor <laughs> and, and we didn't do such things. I have led a life of deprivation. Now I can go, but I'm too old to enjoy it and I really don't care. Uh, plus, I didn't grow up with these characters. And I really don't want to meet the criminals who are in those costumes. <laughs> they're not criminals. I'm sure they're, they're fine, upstanding citizens who have chosen to lead a life inside of a costume. Imagine if at some point we said, look, there is leisure inequality in this country and we need to find a way just as we did with college loans to subsidize Disney tickets. I think right now we would be debating not $154 Disney tickets, but $1,500 Disney tickets. They could keep raising their prices infinitely. Now there are some constraints because at some point you do bump into other options like going to France or going to other places where kids are entertained, water slides or mountain climbing or something where your kids would go on without dying because <laughs> they're out of shape. Anyway, let's not subsidize it. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, share it with others. Sign up on patreon.com forward slash McFuture to support the show. And I will see you next week on the McFuture. I have no connection with Winnie the Pooh. I wasn't born in this country. By the time I got here, I was too old for most of Disney and all these other things. But Winnie the Pooh, uh, apparently the IP was developed years and years ago, in the 1920s. The copyright expires, I think, every 75 years, uh, unless you do something to modify it, to renew it. Anyway, it expired. So these guys made what looks like the most atrocious movie in history. It's a, a horror movie where Winnie the Pooh kills a bunch of young teenagers. And look, I'm all for people making whatever movies they want, but this looks like such trash. It is a lesson in refreshing your IP or creating some sort of <laughs> plan for renewing it. Like Disney has been, I think, paying off a lot of government officials to allow them to keep renewing Mickey Mouse and all these other characters. Uh, otherwise, they would have lost it too. And who knows what uh, awful horror movies uh, could be done with Mickey, Minnie, and Goofy. It reminded me of an idea I had of taking some of these old stories and continuing them or creating sort of alternate universes because so many things expire every year, like all the Dracula stories and Frankenstein, all these things have already expired. So people are free to make whatever versions they want. There's so much in the public domain that I think there is a huge opportunity to take some of these stories that are already recognizable and have recognizable characters and run with them. to leave now i really need to find out what's happening here okay
kind of cold. Um, did you say I was a pool? We need to go! There's... The Laura's dead. There's someone else outside. What was that? Why are you doing this, please? I would have never left, I swear. I 